It's the end of the 2015 championship season in the UK, and the Batley Bulldogs are relieved to have survived the drop to the rugby league precipice known as League One, the third and final tier of the UK professional system. It's been a tough old year of big effort for little reward, close games lost, and a proud and historic club wondering how to steady the course. Fast forward to 2016, the Bulldogs are suddenly in with an outside shot of joining the big boys in Super League. Must have been an interesting 12 months, right? You don't know the half of it. Progressive Rugby League John O'Duncan here, welcoming you to another instalment of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club, and today we're talking Underdogs by Tony Hannon. Underdogs follows the heroic travails of the Batley Bulldogs through their 2016 championship season. A founding member of the Northern Union in 1895, Batley has a proud history. A powerhouse club in the early days, more recently they've battled away in the lower leagues, remaining competitive and keeping their heads above water through a mix of sheer will and humour and thanks to the efforts of a hearty bunch of rugby league devotees. Through their 2016 season, this part-time unit of builders, joiners, sales reps and students upend the odds and claw their way toward the top of the championship ladder, besting teams with bigger names and larger budgets. Led by a wily coach and inspirational skipper, the Bulldogs learn to hang in through the tough times, and when it looks like things are starting to slip away, they hang in some more. It's a fascinating ride for the Batley Rugby League Club, but 2016 sees so much more going on in the town. Brexit lurks up on the horizon and tragedy strikes. A political assassination of the local MP. The country, the world looks on in shock. Batley becomes a poster child for a region, a country with an identity crisis. The glory days are in the rear view, the demographics changing and there's a sense of unease. At the same time though, there's a warmth to Batley and a genuine commitment from the community to get along and make a better town. Tony is there for all the complexity and witnesses a town in transition, grappling with itself. More than anything though, Tony's there to witness how a humble but proud rugby league club with a hard-working band of volunteers, a small but committed bunch of fans and a dedicated crew of players and staff walk the tightrope that is semi-professional rugby league. A tightrope where a bad signing can lead to a bad year and a bad year to oblivion. The margins are thin on and off the field, the distance between precariousness and glory remarkably short. And Tony's there to give us the full 360 experience. He's at training on those frigid winter nights. He's sitting through yet another video session. He's on the team bus, in the dressing sheds, the team huddle, the grandstand, the boardroom. He's there, so we're there. And through Tony, we feel it all. And we are lucky enough to be joined by Tony Hannon, the author of Underdogs. Tony, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League Book Club and a belated congratulations on a brilliant work. Oh, cheers, John. Thanks for uh, having us on. You should have written the blurb, mate. That was <laughs> <excellent>. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Just came up with it in five seconds. Look, Tony, the 2016 season turned out to be one to remember for the Batley Bulldogs, and you were right there to capture it. What gave you the inkling that it would be one worth witnessing? Well, nothing really. I wasn't expecting it to be um, a big year, certainly not as big as it was. I thought, if anything, it might be just another story of slog and struggle, which, to be honest, was the thing I was most interested in anyway. I wasn't really expecting that sort of rags-to-riches, fairy tales of dimension that it took on. 
Now, Tony, we have a, a great contingent of UK listeners to the show. And in fact, two of our UK listeners, Ian East from Leeds or Ian from East Leeds and Dan James from Warrington, they actually recommended this book to us. But I'd say most of our listeners are outside the UK, mostly Australia. So how would you describe the town of Batley to an outsider like myself? Is it fair to describe it as a typical post-industrial northern town or am I on the verge of suffocating myself in cliché? I mean, to be honest, I think that's pretty much exactly what it is. It's a former mill town in the north of England, obviously, not very far from Bradford at all, uh, and Leeds, sort of equidistant probably between those two big cities. So in a way, it's always been a little bit on the outer, except going far enough back to Victorian times when it was huge, like everywhere else in the north, because uh, the heavy woolen district, as it's known, Mm -hmm. in tandem with its near neighbour Dewsbury, was known for making shoddy which is this old rough material that they used to make great coats for soldiers for in, in, in the First World War, and probably Second as well. And at that time, there was a lot of money in battle. There was a proud identity to it. People were very proud to come from there. It obviously had its struggles, obviously, much of the north of England that always has had. But, you know, it was a, a place with a lot of spirit, a lot of heart. And if you'd, if you'd said to the word battle to anybody in the country, they would have known where it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always had this thing going for it, actually, through history, just thinking about it, where despite the fact that it's got this sort of unglamorous reputation, at various points in history, things have happened there which have sort of put it onto the national stage quite un- in unlikely ways, you might think. In the 1960s, for example, there was a very famous nightclub there called the Batley Variety Club, mm. which w- was internationally renowned. It's like, almost like the Las Vegas of England in its way, <laughs> with all the great stars of the day playing there, Louis Armstrong, Roy Orbison, people like that, uh, Shirley Bassey, I mean, really big superstars. So it's always had that aspect to it. It's a very interesting place. It's very gothic in terms of architecture. It's, if you're interested in history, and especially like British history, social history, it's a great place to get into because all the signs of the past are still there. Yeah. Nowadays, well, like everywhere else, or certainly lots of other places across the north, places like Oldham, Bradford, obviously, Keithley, those sorts of places, Rochdale, uh, immigration's become a major issue. So you've had this influx of mainly Muslim workers who came in to work in those mills. Then, of course, the mills fell on hard times, and this sort of dislocation of identities have taken place there between what you might call the traditional white working class and this new, in the inverted commas, intake of a Muslim population. Mm. So you've got that dynamic as well, where those two communities are trying to rub together and get along. It's an absolutely fascinating place, really, with all sorts going on there. And it's just perfect from a rightly point of view, because if, if you want to really get behind the skin of British society and attitudes within not just sport, but just, you know, the culture more generally. You can't do any better, really, than, than go to Batley. And, of course, 2016, that all came to a head with the Brexit vote, didn't it, and all, mm. all these sort of events around that. So, once again, you had Batley there thrust onto the national stage. Mm. Yeah, and we'll get to the, the social side of things shortly. But first, uh, I want to talk about what I thought was the, the masterstroke of the book, which came before you even put pen to paper, and that was by choosing a part-time semi-professional setup to embed yourself within. Why did you choose a club like Batley and not one of the big guns like Leeds or St Helens? Basically because I thought they were more interesting. And also I've always, in a, in a sort of wider way, been more interested in life's underdogs. It t- tends to have better stories, it seems to me. Hmm. And I mean, you could argue that rugby league as a whole is, a, is an underdog sport anyway. 
So even if you go to the most glamorous end of the game at Wigan, somewhere like that, you're still really in the realm of underdogs, that's true enough. Mm. But what I wanted to, to get to within an underdog game was underdogs within an underdog sport, if you yeah. know what I mean. I, I just thought that seemed more interesting. And the, the idea actually went back well before I actually got the go-ahead to write this thing because way back when I was, I used to edit Rugby League World magazine and right the way back then I can remember conversations with our then championship writer Gareth Walker who now writes for the Daily Mirror over here on mm. Rugby League mm. that, that, that somebody somewhere should do an in-depth book of championship level rugby league really was screaming out for somebody to get in behind the scenes sort of thing and basically tell it how it is because mm. the, the thing's just full of great characters and it's it's rugby league at its essence that level of the game it's boiled down you've got blokes there who are part time for a start so most of them are on building sites or whatever else and then dragging themselves off to training and then to, to play there's that element of it it's, it's a real gritty reality cold faced type thing and to be honest I don't think anybody had done that before certainly not well I'm pretty sure nobody had in terms of literature there'd been a programme here in England called uh, Rugby League Raw which did a similar thing back in the, I think, 1990s. But, of course, in books, you've got more chance to get much more into into the depth of it, you know, and really mm. dig, dig a lot deeper. But the thing is, I wanted to apply a journalistic sort of reportage approach to it because those are the books that have always interested me more. The, the one that, I suppose, if you were looking for an influence on, on underdogs would be uh, Homicide by David Simon, a year on the killing streets of Baltimore, mm. where he basically got in behind... The, uh, the police, as they call them out there, and spent a year with them investigating murders and various other crimes and stuff and getting to know the characters in the police department as mm. not just people in uniforms, but human beings and, and sort of really investigating the types of things that they went through day to day. Well, I thought if you, if you could apply that sort of approach to a rugby league club, well, that would be absolutely fascinating. So, so that had been an ambition. But given rugby league's profile in this country, it's not huge. Trying to get a book like that past a major national publisher was next to impossible, really. Mm. So the thing that really sparked underdogs off was pretty straightforward. It was Keegan Hurst coming out as gay. Yeah. Suddenly, you had a national figure there in the headlines, and all of a sudden, publishers were interested. Now, let's talk about Keegan Hurst. He's obviously a major character in the book, not only a standout forward and club captain at the time, but as you say, a man whose profile rose exponentially when he became the first British rugby league professional to come out as gay in 2015. So how did he, his teammates and the club, A, handle that news and B, his newfound celebrity? Very well, I have to say. I mean, it, it, was, it was fascinating. One of the ideas, well, I'll tell you how it came, up, came about, basically, is that I have an agent anyway, and I've sort of been firing ideas backwards and forwards yeah. for my next book that I wanted to write. And in the back of my head, I did want to do something about rugby league, but I didn't know what. And anyway, then Keegan came out. The agent then suggested to me, you should do a biography of Keegan, mm-hmm. you know, his story or whatever, which w- would have been all right. But I, was, I thought, well, it's, you know, he's quite a young bloke. To be honest, I'm sure he'd agree himself at that, that stage in his career, not done a great deal, really, on the field, mm. not achieved sort of great headlines or anything. I think quite a lot of rugby league people probably wouldn't really have known who he was. But... I thought, well, if, if we look at it from a different angle, so if we tell the story of Keegan, but not just Keegan's own words and, and his experiences, important as they are, if, if we look at what's going on around him, the reaction of the club, the reaction of the supporters, the reaction of the of opponents, all the rest of it, that is going to be a lot more interesting. Um, that's going to tell us 
a heck of a lot more about the game as well as, as Keegan himself. So uh, I went in there expecting there to be quite a lot of drama around that and, and maybe overhearing things in the crowd and uncovering a little bit of homophobia here and there, possibly all this sort of, these sorts of ideas. But it very quickly became apparent to me that that's just, that just wasn't how it was going to turn out. Mm. And that actually, far from being the centrepiece of the book for being gay, Keegan sort of did become one of the centrepieces of the book, but not for that, for, for the season he had. It was just an incredible season that he put in on the field, mm. and his influence as the captain was huge. Therefore, very quickly, the sort of gay aspect of it, completely, I won't say completely fell away, but certainly receded into just one more issue among many, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, the, and the really impressive thing I thought was for the sport as a whole was to how quickly everyone, just about, seemed to accept that. They just fell into line with it. Certainly his teammates had no issue whatsoever with it mm-hmm. at all. Not, not, not a drop. Nobody in the club did. The supporters certainly didn't. There were, I think in the whole of the season I only overheard two what might be termed homophobic comments. That aside, those two little, very quite tiny moments really aside, it was trouble free for him, I'm sure, I'm sure he'd agree. Uh, the interesting thing, I think, or one of the interesting things is would that have been the case if it wasn't at Batley? He himself asks that in the book, doesn't he? Because mm. he, he formerly played at Featherston. And had a rough time. Which is, yeah. yeah, it's sort of an old mining town, basically. And I don't think he'd had a great time there, no. I think he'd not particularly enjoyed himself. And he did, he did wonder how he would have been received there. But certainly at Batley, there was never any problem because it's, it is a family club in the truest sense of it. Just about everybody there is related to each other in some way or related to someone else within the club, if you know what I mean. And that's going back like 100 years. So if any club was going to sort of put its arms around him and say, never mind, just crack on, it was always going to be Batley. Mm, there you go. And Tony, you really do get a sense of all the different characters through the Batley Bulldogs Rugby League Club through your fly-on-the-wall approach. What was that fly-on-the-wall process like? Did it take a while for the players to not notice you? Yeah, but I mean, there's a sort of a knack to it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Basically, what my approach is always when I go in is to sort of try and, not, you know, not in any great way, but just to try to look a little bit, um, not daft exactly, but, you know, um, <laughs> as, as, as though you need everybody's help all the time, that you want to understand. And it's true, you do want to understand. I mean, I've been around rugby league a long time. I've, I think 25 years I've worked in rugby league journalism. And in that time, you think that you, you know the sport, you think you know all there is to know about it, but you actually don't. And when you get behind the scenes of rugby league club, it becomes very apparent what you don't know, and that's quite a lot. So you ask questions, basically. You, you get people on side that way. And, of course, naturally, over the period of time, because you were them all the time, mm. just about. I mean, you don't go on for your tea with them, but just about <laughs> every other day of the week, you, you're there in and amongst it. You, you do become friendly, and you start to care for these people. And the game itself takes on another dimension then, because... You're not just watching rugby league players out on the field. You're watching people who become your mates to, mm. to an extent. You know? mm-hmm. But you still have to maintain that distance as well, which is very important because there will be times when people take a wrong step, perhaps, or a controversial step, or say something which is slightly, oh, you know. Mm. And if you're going to do the job right, then you've got to report those moments. Otherwise, you, you're failing the reader. So it's, it's a, it is a tricky balancing act to some extent. You've got to be very professional about it. But at the same time, if you're doing it right, you should really just become one of the team. And by the end of it, I think I, I wasn't. I won't go so bad to say I was one of the team because I didn't go out on the pitch and play. That's something I didn't do. Mm. But even in that very last sort of huddle, 
before they went out there for the big game. I mean, Keegan, one of the moments of my life, actually, Keegan used me in the pre-match sort of rousing speech that he wow. used to give. Like, Tony's writing a book here about, you know, he's going to come out, do we want to be in it as losers, that, that <laughs> type of talk, firing everybody up. And I thought, that, well, there's on the back of my neck stood up at that moment. I thought, my God, I'm, I'm into something here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite quite a thing. Fabulous. Now, another character of the book of the Batley Rugby League Club at that time was John Keir. Now, Batley were lucky lucky enough to have his services during this period. What made him so effective during this season in this environment, do you think? It's just his... his basically, he's obsessed with rugby league, is John. He, he just lives and breathes it, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has any other interest. Well, apart from his dogs. <laughs> he likes to go out walking his dogs. They're very close to him. And, and his wife used to joke that it was basically rugby league first, dogs second, although that's debatable, and her third. You know. There's a certain amount of truth in it, because he, he is absolutely obsessed with the game. A real student of rugby league, understands it in and out, not just now, but the history of it as well. He's a former player himself, of course, he used to play on the wing at Castleford, by his own admission, not the greatest player ever, but certainly one of the coaches. I know if I owned the rugby league team, he'd be one of the first people that I'd be seeking to get involved, mm-hmm. because he's just got his head on it at all times. He understands players. He's a great man manager. He knows when to be relaxed and have a laugh. He knows when to really sort of get into him. He's great at uh, anybody over here who's seen him, who's watched BBC coverage or Sky or whatever, will have seen him doing punditry on, on the rugby league, on Super League shows. Uh, and he's great at that. He's basically got it all going on. And, and that was another of the reasons why I thought that Batley was the club to go to because he was there and I knew that he'd know what I was trying mm. to achieve. I wouldn't, he wouldn't see me as some sort of enemy in the midst. He would realise that I was there. So the, a book for a national audience or an international audience, hopefully, about Batley was obviously going to be good for the club. So uh, he got that straight away as I knew he would. But he, he's smart, you know, he's a former school teacher as well, and that, that comes through. So he, he knows how to treat people, he knows how to educate them, he knows how to inspire them. I mean, it, his sort of pre-match speeches are just the stuff of legend. Mm. I don't, it's a bit of a cliche to call them Churchillian, but, but they, are, they really are, although peppered with uh, profanities here and there. But, you know, that just makes him all the more lovable and funny as far as I'm concerned. He's just, he's, he's just a real genuine person. And I, mm. I think it's no surprise that if you look up the road to Bradford at the moment, who are doing it quite tough on and off the field, well, not so much on now, they start to pull it around a little bit there. And the reason for that is, is definitely John Keir. Mm. I think if you, if you were um, starting up a new club anywhere, you'd really want somebody like that in on the ground floor. And it actually was really fascinating to witness or to read how a coach like John manipulated the ebb and flow of the team's emotions and really got them up for the important times and then relax them at the right times obviously it's not easy to do and he didn't always get it right but that's probably one of the key tasks of a coach yeah it is it's like it's sort of conducted an orchestra isn't it he's got all these different aspects of it going on and he he is a master there's there's no doubt about that the the other aspect of it of course as well is that tactically he's he's spot on and and one of the things that I I always feel basically underplayed in rugby league a heck of a lot is this as rather overplayed is this idea of it being a simple Mm. that there's not much going on it's just basically big blokes throwing the ball to each other and, and bashing into each other for six tackles well once you get behind the scenes with a person like John Keir and, and getting in amongst it you realise that's absolute tripe it's just <laughs> the, the only difference is between rugby league and any other sport is that it's played at great speed 
within that environment, the thinking has to just be lightning quick. There are tactics going on. Everybody knows what's happening with every single move. Mm. And that type of thing is something which was really brought to life in the company of John Keir because he's, he knows what's happening all the time. He's, he's, if you've seen him on TV, you'll have seen his fingers dancing all the time. He, he's just, it's almost like he's out there himself. So that, that's a, a big aspect of his uh, talent as well, I think. And you're right, Tony, because rugby league is often labelled a simple game, which shouldn't really be a criticism because simplicity is, is golden, but sometimes it contains that veiled dig at the people who play and support the game. So it's good that your experience proved otherwise. Now, Tony, a really interesting part of the book is when you sit down with Ikram Butt, the first Muslim to represent England in rugby league, and several of his South Asian community associates so you discuss why Batley and Rugby League more broadly has failed to win that community over. Batley's population, as you mentioned earlier, is 33% South Asian. Yet, from what I can gather from the book, the club and the grandstands are filled with white faces. Why isn't Batley Bulldogs more representative of the community it represents? Is it distinctly a Batley Bulldogs issue or more Rugby League-wide in the UK? Well, that's, that's why I wanted to talk to Ikram, really, because it, it's all right sort of me pontificating on, on this sort of thing and such an issue from, from my position, because I am a member of the white, well, I come out of the white working class, that's mm. my background. So for me to start sort of then pontificating about why there are no more Asians in the game and all that and what, what Bally should be doing and so on, I thought we'd, we'd, we needed uh, genuine Asian voices in there. And Ikram, there's no finer example of somebody from that Asian Muslim community, South Asian community, who's made it big in rugby league and done really well for himself, mm. as you say, the first ever England rugby international in either code, uh, helped him to write his autobiography, that's how I knew mm. him, and he's just a great lad, he's busy and gets around the community, he knows everybody in the world, and as he says in that little section and as a little group we get together to discuss the theme, so to say, from their point of view, the, the the game as a whole is not reaching out to that community anywhere near enough, particularly so given its predominance in the north of England and in the very sorts of towns where rugby league has its roots. Mm. That doesn't seem to make much sense. You'd think if, if you're going to have a future in those places, then you have to engage with every section of the community. And quite honestly, there, there aren't enough of that type of activities going on, as far as I can see anyway. And certainly while I was up at Batley, there were one or two people there who sort of recognised that fact and were trying to do something about it. And there were events put on in tandem with the cricket club next door, for example, which has a largely Asian membership. Mm. And they, were, they had open days where members of the community could come in and have a look around. And they, in their view, they, they had actually reached out to that community quite often, let kids come in for nothing just to sit and watch the game, etc., etc. But equally, there were people who would argue that the Asian people in, in Batley just weren't interested in coming to watch it, mm-hmm. which of course is a convenient position to take, but there were actually signs that it genuinely wasn't on that community's radar very much. So it's, it's one of those situations where it's, it's difficult to, to know a way forward, really. My, my, my view, I think, if, if that's what you're asking, is that the game as a whole, when it comes to any number of issues, such as expansion, comes down to the fact that the sport in, in England does not have a high enough profile as a whole. So therefore, there's no glamour attached to going to watch the league. Mm -hmm. If you, for example, go and watch a Premier League football match or in the Championship, or 
if you go to watch a big cricket match or a rugby union match or anything, it's something to boast about on Monday morning when you go into work. If you go to watch a rugby league match in the north of England somewhere, big deal, nobody's going to be remotely impressed. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, people might even keep it quiet. You know? Yeah, right. So, so th- th- there's that sort of aspect of the game which is never going to attract the attention of people who are, who are looking for glamour and that type of thing. It will attract people who's like me, who's, who's interested in the sort of, as I said, the underdog element of society. People who want to get, dig into that area and get to something in, with integrity, something real, mm. which is very much what it is. And I think if you go along, you see that straight away. There's nobody there because they think it makes them look good or anything. Mm. They're there simply because they love the sport. There's no other reason for them to be there. Mm. And that I find admirable. But in this modern world that we're in, that's not going to really sell you to a larger public, is it? And, mm. and unless you're sort of filling those grounds and getting bums on seats and getting the TV deals and bringing in the sponsorships and earning money, then you are, it's just a brutal fact of life, mm. you, you are going to be in that cycle forever of, of sort of hand-to-mouth uh, a survival game. And that that's basically where rugby league is now, not just in Batley, but right across the country, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of fans in Australia would be surprised to realise how small rugby league is in the UK. Obviously, it has a few pockets along the M62 where it's quite big, but pretty much most other places, it's quite invisible. Just on the Batley fan base, Tony, you you spend a lot of time with those hardy fans and volunteers. It seems like the demographic is not only mostly white, as we say, but also a fairly old one. Is that accurate? And can that be addressed, do you think? talking about I think yeah it is accurate mm. the, the, the vast majority of people that, who go to watch Bartley would certainly be over 30 it wouldn't surprise me if they're over 40 mm. um, and quite possibly over 50 mm-hmm. the, uh, you do see kids running around they do make an attempt there the, the uh, Batley Boys Club are closely entwined with them so you, you'll often see the curtain raises with the kids and they have a, a good girls team there at the moment so you do see youngsters around but by far away the vast uh, majority of people who go to watch Batley are old and getting older, obviously, as we all do. Mm. But again, attracting younger people is something the club knows it has to do, and it's constantly trying to find ways of attracting the local youths in without ever any real great success, it has to be said, over a sustained period of time. But that does come back to what I was saying, doesn't it? You, mm. If you if you try to attract like young people to a sport, the sport itself has to have that glamour attached to it. Huddersfield Town's not far from Batley, for example, and they went up to the Premier League around that time, and of course all the kids then suddenly become Huddersfield Town supporters, yeah. they're off watching the football. Yeah, so, so that, that's the big issue for the sport, really, it has to make itself relevant to a bigger audience, and I think in keeping with your own podcast here, there is a link, because very often you'll see uh, lower league clubs resisting growth, resisting expansion to places like Toronto, mm. and obviously the latest one, and talk of Ottawa and New York and places like that but the interesting thing with Batley is for all that it's it is one of those lower clubs with a long tradition the last it's only won the championship once and that was in 1924 not a snip since uh, never been relegated that's their big <laughs> claim to fame <laughs> but it, despite being a club like that it is still quite forward thinking inside mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the owners of the club have to make the noises about wanting promotion and all that. And in the year that I was following them, in theory, it was possible they were going to go up to Super League at mm. the end of it. So all the, all the noises had to be made that they were ready to do that and they would do that and everything. But secretly, they, they know what their level is and they find... 
height to that level. And they do a very good job of that as well, I think. Now, in your question, you're absolutely right. That is finite. Unless you're replenishing the stocks of supporters year after year and bringing young people in, then there has to come a point where, where that just falls down. Now, just on your comment there about the potential promotion to Super League in that season, did your experience in the inner sanctum of that semi-professional rugby league setup did that change your attitude towards promotion and relegation? Is it feasible for a club like Batley to properly take the next step? Should they belong in the lower tier? I think um, you have to be realistic about things. I think the thing about English sporting culture is that we're all very wed to the idea of, uh, well, most of us, to promotion and relegation because it's just what we've grown up with, really, certainly in football. And therefore, it's a very hard thing to shake off the idea of. And I think... It's particularly difficult to sort of argue against promotion and relegation when the sport is as it actually is. You know, I'm a big believer that you have to deal with the world as it is mm. rather than the world as you'd like it to be mm. to get to the point where it becomes as you'd like it to be. And I think that it's very difficult, for example, when you've got a club like, say, Wakefield in Super League to argue that a club like, say, Batley or anybody else can't go up into that league because you look at Wakefield and you say, well, hang on a minute, what's the what's the difference here? The only difference is they're already in and getting a lot more money mm, right. by virtue of being in. So it's very hard to make that argument. Now, if the structure of the competition was to change in any way, it's probably going to have to do, isn't it, down the line? Mm. Because clearly you can't be bringing in overseas clubs uh, like Toronto and Ottawa and New York and anybody else. You can't be trying to attract billionaires and then basically relegate them for Featherstone the following year. Mm. That's clearly backing mad. Nobody's going to agree to that. So at some point down the line, there's going to have to be a reckoning where maybe you have to say, look, this is, you know, it's, it's a different aspect of the sport. It's, you just can't hope to compete in it. And then I think that question can then be revisited. I think then it would be plausible to say, no, come on, let's be realistic about this. This is how it has to be if this sport's going to continue to be a full-time professional sport in this country mm. because that's the bottom line really the game as a whole I think is approaching a point where it has to decide what it is and what it wants does it want to carry on being as it is now a sort of small scale largely regional game in the north of England pretty much although you know with pockets here and there elsewhere is that how it's happy to continue being as I say struggling along hand to mouth etc etc and there's a lot of good about that I, I don't think I've had a better season than the one I had spent watching Batley mm. so that in itself might be fine that might be the height of aspiration or does it want to be what the game that it thinks it is which is one that the BBC for example should take notice of and mm. the, the one that should be in all the national newspapers etc 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 in which case it, a radical shake up is going to be needed isn't it at some point mm. is that time now well I don't know it, we're getting towards it I mean the big thing over here I'm sure you'll have read the debate is the new TV deal that's due to be stuck which expires in 2021 the old one mm. 200 million pounds over five years well it's looking highly unlikely it seems to me anyway that they are going to get anything like that sort of money right. next time around so that's going to really force a, a few rethinks shall we say in terms of people who have long sort of been against expansion been against reaching out to other areas I think now they're starting to realise that actually that the game has to become more attractive to a wider audience because if the future, or certainly the professional future, is in, for example, streaming services and mm -hmm. things like that, then you have to have, 
wider international appeal, don't you? It's all, I mean, the RFL at the moment are trying various things like the R-League app, which is great, where you can watch all sorts of games on there. But even if Super League was on there, is that, is that going to reach out to new audiences? Is that going to grow the sport? Is that going to make it more glamorous to all the ends that I've just been talking about? Mm. I suspect not, really. So, therefore, you know, there are going to be some hard truths to be faced, and clubs like Batley are going to have to face them at, at some point. Is it exactly now? Well, it is getting there, because 2021 is, what, it's only well, a year away, isn't it, just about now? Yeah, look, it's going to be a fascinating couple of years. We've been following it very closely, and I think the signing of Sonny Bill Williams to Toronto was pretty good timing. Now, 2016 really was an astonishing year in the UK with the unrelenting pain in the backside that was the Brexit referendum, and Batley was thrust right into the centre of it. The town shot to worldwide prominence in June of that year, just days out from the vote, when Labour MP for Batley, Joe Cox, was assassinated by Thomas Nair, a Batley constituent and a far-right extremist. Can you take us through that moment in time for the town? Because it was a complicated period. The town was represented by a pro-Remain Labour MP. She was ultimately murdered by a British nationalist in favour of Brexit, and the town itself ultimately voted to leave the EU. And I note in parentheses that... Uh, in the recent election, Batley returned their Labor candidate in a part of the country that swung heavily away from Labor. It must have been, in 2016, a confusing time for the town, and naturally, by extension, the club. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. As I remember it, I think Batley had won something like five games on the trot at that time, and they were going great guns, and very much the playoffs were in, in sight, and everybody was focused on that, and, and JK, John Keir had got them all really completely targeting that thing. Everybody was pulling in one direction. They had real forward momentum and all the rest of it. And then suddenly this news story suddenly came out of the blue. I think I was writing at home, actually, on the, on the day, and the, the news bulletin thing went off, and I went to have a look. A uh, local MP shot in Bristol, which is like a little part of Batley, not far away from the club. And then it turned out to be Joe Cox, of course, and all the, the whole horrible story came out and yeah the, the club was in shock to start with because she, she was a very familiar figure around the club she'd been involved in various fundraisers was a big supporter of the girls rugby league team that they have there mm-hmm. so there were connections there and just about everybody there knew joe you know reasonably well as well as you would know your local mp because batley is a big part of the town it's part of its self-image batley bulldogs are so yeah she recognized that being a politician so, so the two tended to sort of rub again together very well and after that, it was a case of complete shock. But I think most of that to begin with was, was not a particularly political thing, really. Mm. I think, as the subsequent referendum proved, the majority of people in Batley were in favour of leaving the European Union, whereas Joe obviously campaigned to remain. But they liked her. They liked what she did for the town. And I think you've seen a similar thing in the recent general election with Tracy Brabin, who took over from Joe, who also originally, I believe, was was a, a Remain candidate. But yes, she got re-elected this time. And as you say, a lot of the red dots on the map that were traditionally Labour, or always have been for the last 100 years or so, did go over to the Conservatives this time. Batley was not one of those places again, you know. So I think people in Batley have, have a, I suppose you call it a social conscience for their, for their own area. They have a lot of civic pride, that's the way of putting it. Um, and I think they recognise that they struggle and they recognise that the town itself struggles and they just appreciate somebody who's doing what they can for their town and Joe Cox 
certainly did that. She was very hands-on. Tracy Brabin seems to be very hands-on as well, and they respect that. They respect that much more than somebody coming in and just sounding off about what they're going to do, who, who they don't know. Well, these both of those um, women were, and indeed they are in Tracy's case, locals. So, yeah, I think I think they respected that. Even, even if they disagreed with them politically, uh, there's a lot of respect for them as human beings. So it cut deep. It was a personal thing. And when you drove in through Batley afterwards, I remember the first night going in up to the club, the place was absolutely deserted. It was it was really very, very strange. And then you got into the club and the uh, sort of mood was very sombre, as you'd expect. Yeah, it was, it was a very sad time, really. It was, and it was a very strange time to be in behind the scenes as well because you suddenly got this big national story erupting, international story of reports from the New Yorker were there covering it and all this sort of thing and New York Times and so on and so forth all on the doorstep of Batley you know and you find yourself right in the eye of the storm so there's also an aspect of it where if you like to write and you're a bit of a journalist or whatever then that sort of thing is actually something which part of you says good grief you know you, you do see the story and you see that there's something going on which is bigger than what you'd initially envisaged and the challenge then of course is to sort of keep your head to be respectful uh, but to try and capture that and to try to bring it to life and to explain just what it was like to be at the heart of that storm at at that particular moment in history. Mm. And of course Tony as you just mentioned we've just had a, a general election in the UK dubbed the Brexit election and wouldn't you know it, rugby league was thrust into the spotlight as a major battleground uh, where the election might be decided. Workington Man, a white working class, middle to older age rugby league fan, represented the Tories' chance to break through Labour's red wall, which looked suspiciously on the map to this untrained eye, like an M62 shaped rugby league defensive line chasing a kick. Now, when the Workington Man story came out, many locals seemed offended. Was it a patronising generalisation or a, an obvious insight? Um, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think they had touched on something there, and I, I certainly think it was taken as a, a bit of a slight to start with, yeah, because it, it's, it's quite a reductive thing. I think whenever you stick labels on people like yeah. working to man or, or whatever, you're, you're sort of reducing everybody and bringing them into the same camp. It's easily understood and all that. And I, I think th- there, w- there was a sort of attitude underpinning that that... that Basically, what the Tories have to do is appeal to these slightly simple Northerners who are so simple that they actually enjoy rugby league, that sort of thing. Yeah. But a, li- a little bit of that is also a bit of a chip on your shoulder because as things actually transpire, that is precisely, I'm not saying everybody's simple there by any means, mm. but that is precisely what they actually did manage to do in terms of get people who, for the last, as I say, 400 a year or 800 years, had voted Labour to suddenly, out of nowhere, vote Conservative was quite a trick. Mm. So in a way, it kind of worked because if, if you look around the, the Leave voting areas in the north of England, you, you cannot ignore the fact that the big cities apart, a good chunk of, of those areas are rugby league towns. You know, mm. if, you, if you look at the likes of Oldham, Rochdale, Bulking, you could go on really, Halifax, Huddersfield, wherever. There is a truth attached to that, isn't there? You can't you can't ignore it. Really, it's a very interesting aspect of, of rugby league culture. It's it's also it seems to me chimes with that thing we were talking about before, where the initial knee-jerk reaction of many people in the lower reaches of English rugby league is to be suspicious of new clubs, is to be suspicious of strangers in the midst, much more comfortable with the devil they know, if you know what I mean. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and and that you could argue is it's pretty much the Brexit vote described, isn't it, really? It's, mm. it's people who want to 
gone on in terms of rugby league expansion as well. So it ought not really to have come as any great surprise to discover it was replicated in the Brexit vote when the actual discussion mm. had a lot of contrast in it, really. Yeah. I'm sort of myself a bit confused of whether it's a really complex issue where you've got working class roots and uh, economic hardship mixed with changing demographics or if it's just pretty simple in that these guys just wanted Brexit. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. In terms of the election, yeah, I think it's quite complicated because what I've just said about the uh, MPs in Bartley, I think, again, can be extrapolated out to the to the actual general election outcome this time with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. Mm. Because, I'm, I, I mean, to me, it seems crystal clear that the reason that those places went away is twofold. Yeah, at the moment, you've got arguments within the Labour Party about, what, was it Brexit or was it the leadership? Was it Jeremy Corbyn? Mm. And it seems to me it was clearly both. Mm. There's no, there is no question that the people in those areas just wanted to leave and get it done and get out. But equally, it seems clear to me that the vast majority of people did not trust Jeremy Corbyn. But rightly or wrongly, it might be a perfectly nice man, but they centred in him a Marxist and a dangerous revolutionary or whatever who was going to make their lives even worse. Rightly or wrongly, that's so. The two, the two things are quite. It's quite possible for two things to be true at once, and mm. I think in that particular instance, two things have been true at once. And what I would contend is, without getting too political about it, is that had the Labour Party had a leader who people did like, who people did warm to, I think as happened in Batley with with Joe Cox and, uh, and now just happened with Tracy Brabin more to the point, I suppose, because that is a general election, they would probably have overridden their worries about Brexit and, and gone with him anyway, or her anyway. If, if that Labour leader had the charisma, if they made you believe that they could actually do something for you and were genuinely hands-on in any way, and this could be completely unfair to Jeremy Corbyn, because probably he was, or maybe he was, who knows. But in the perception, he was not the sort of person that they could trust. And if it had been the sort of person they could trust. I think that the Brexit thing would not have been quite the issue that it has been in the general election. Could be completely wrong about that, of course. And anyway, mm. it's all hindsight now. Anyway, it doesn't matter, does it? It's done and dusted. Mm. You do see the reflection yeah. um, within rugby league and wider society. And I think that's that's what really interests me about it as a sport. And it's also really what drove me to write about Batley in the first place, mm. which is that if you want to understand uh, English culture and English society and the sort of preponderance of class, north and south, geography, all that stuff, you cannot do better than study uh, rugby league because it will tell you all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. It's all there. It's all there in the details, it's there in the history, it's there in the day-to-day cultural attitudes of the game, all the debates that take place within it, all the politics and all the rest of it. Mm. It's all there within rugby league and that was certainly true in Batley in 2016. You know, Tony, it's interesting... Uh, all that you said about the British Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn has been said pretty much to the word about the Australian Labour Party and Bill Shorten, a very unpopular leader, for whatever reason wasn't trusted and was beaten by a salesman with a very simple message. So it's amazing how yeah. similar both our political elections and political landscape has been over the last couple of years. And we can say the same thing here about, about the Rugby Football League itself and Super League, if mm. you think about it. Mm-hmm. The same arguments are there, aren't they? If, if you've got somebody who's in charge who's got that charisma, who are salespeople, mm. then you've got a much better, better chance of selling the sport as a whole, mm-hmm. which will then 
help not just the people at the top of the game, but will also help clubs like Batley and, and further down as well. So it is important, is leadership. It really is. Yeah. And yeah, you, you've just got to cross your fingers because these are choppy times, particularly in England, I mm. think, for British Rugby League, or Northern Hemisphere Rugby League anyway. Yeah. Um, you, you just, you've got to cross your fingers that we can get people in charge of the game who actually do have that vision and know how to sell it, whilst at the same time valuing all those clubs further down the food chain. Mm. Look, Tony, thank you so much for your time. We're out of time for this part of the show, but thanks for taking the time to speak to us. Congratulations on a fascinating book. Like you said, it really covers the full gamut from sport to culture to politics. A lot of serious issues, but also peppered throughout a lot of fantastic dry humour and all the classic rugby league characters that you get involved with throughout the 2016 season. So an amazing book. I enjoyed reading it thoroughly. And thank you for all your work on that. And thanks for joining us on the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, John. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Okay. Progressive Rugby League. Well, what a fantastic chat about a fascinating book. I really do recommend it, not only for UK listeners, obviously, but particularly for those of us outside the UK. If you've been watching what's been going on in that country over the last five years and thought, huh? Well, this provides a hell of a lot of insight. And the cherry on top, of course, is that it's wrapped in a splendid rugby league bow. The book is available worldwide. Well, I got it in Australia very easily online from what I think was Angerton Robertson, so do yourselves a favor and look out for a new book from Tony to be released in 2020 where he goes behind the scenes of the minor counties cricket scene. All right, that'll do. You've been listening to the Progressive Rugby League Book Club. I've been and continue to be John O'Duncan. As Tony said earlier, the Batley Variety Club was a big deal in the 60s and 70s and someone who provided great memories for the people of Batley and had a great relationship with the town of Batley was Roy Orbison. So let's finish off with Roy Orbison and it's over live from the Batley Variety Club.